0: Good morning, gents. If I can encourage us to gather in. Come, let's fill up from the front, shall we? I think uh, we might have wrong-footed one or two, with this being an off week to our normal every other week. So let's show Paul some love by filling up from the front. Grab that tea, coffee, croissant. Keep heading in, especially... uh, the son of our speaker. It's fantastic to see everyone again this morning um, at St. Michael's. I hope you're surviving this this weather uh, this morning of, uh, I don't know, Rupert, whether you were on that train, but people commuting back home last night on a train that still had its heating on. So I don't know quite what that was like, but um, perhaps that's where some of our men have got to. They, they perished on the commute home last night. But um, anyway, to business, um, wonderful to be with you all again this morning as we continue our series in 2 Timothy. Um, we're back again in three weeks' time, just to confuse you a little further, so our usual rhythm would have been meeting next week and then two weeks after that, but next week the building's out of action, which is why we're meeting this week, um, and so we're three weeks today gathering for our final meeting of the term. i um, thrilled this morning to have Paul Perkin, the Reverend Paul Perkin with us, uh, who I'd love to welcome up and just ask a couple of questions by way of introduction. Uh, Paul, fantastic to have you here with us. Paul has been a vicar of St Mark's Battersea Rise for some twenty-eight, twenty-eight years, twenty-eight years. Yeah. Paul, could you give us an insight? What keeps you going in ministry, uh, especially ministry in the same church for twenty-eight years?
1: Uh, Well, you don't particularly need to move to a new church when the new church keeps moving to you. Um, uh, In other words, if the average time is, I guess, here as well, is that people stay three or four years, then stay still and a new church keeps coming along. Um, So that helps the freshness. Um, I do think that um, keeping learning and growing yourself is absolutely key. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about that maybe in a moment. But keeping fresh input keeps you fresh. And keeping um, keeping in contact with people who themselves are keeping fresh, who are growing. So I, I try to seek out, you know, experiences, conferences, groups. I'm a bit of a conference junkie, really. Uh, and I keep going to places and, you know... Retreats and two-day things and clergy conferences and things <laughs> like that where I'm mixing with people who are still on the move mm. and that helps uh, as well. Um, a wife who's constantly gingering you up to keep fresh helps as well uh, <laughs> and, uh, and watching Christine, my wife growing into uh, and, uh, you know, a flowering ministry over the last few years has been a constant sort of challenge and encouragement
0: and inspiration to me myself as well. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a number of things that immediately yeah. come to mind. Thank you, Paul. And you are, um, I wondered if you'd even be with us this morning, because you've just returned from a ministry trip to Nigeria. I think you got back, I don't know, if it was last night. Or uh, last morning. night, yes. Last night. Um, could you tell us what's that about and what inspires you about your relationship um, with uh, folks over there? Uh, I was just saying to Charles, seeing the and meeting the
1: African congregations and their leaders in their context is very different from seeing them when they come to England for a, an Anglican conference here. Uh, seeing the confidence, um, the clarity, the simplicity, the sharpness, the incisiveness, I, is what I mean by that, of their ministry is very impressive. Um, seeing them utterly at home in a very stressful situation. Um, What they call the crises, their word crisis is what in Northern Ireland used to be called the troubles. It's exactly the same meaning, the troubles in Northern Ireland, the crisis in Northern Nigeria. It means uh, torching of buildings, um, kidnappings, killings, uh, bombings and so on. These are happening certainly two or three times a week. Uh, and in some cases every day, still, all around. That's taking the whole of northern Nigeria. Um, Of course, we saw the the 200 Chibok girls that caught international news, uh, which incidentally caught international news partly because there were so many, there were 200 girls, uh, partly because they were girls from a boarding school, but mainly because they came from the upper echelons of society. Um, And therefore, the news of it hit global press very, very quickly, Uh, which they're not negative about. They say, you know, if there was one thing that was going to catch the world's news, that's good. But as long as you realise that there were lots of young girls being kidnapped before then, and lots after then. Um, On the day we arrived, a 13-year-old girl, indoctrinated by Boko Haram, um, uh, Uh, killed herself in a suicide uh, bomb attack. Um, So that's the level of what's happening. Can you imagine it? 13-year-old girls being so indoctrinated with the promise that they will go to heaven if they sacrifice themselves um, with a suicide bomb um, and killing lots of people in the marketplace. Um, So that's what they're living with all the time. But there's a kind of simple joy and, and... determination which is so impressive
0: in the midst of all of that mm. wow um thank you paul certainly something we could pray into in our groups uh, a little later this morning um we're so uh, glad you could be with us this morning can we pray for you thank then, you mm. father we thank you um for bringing paul safely home with christine and the team from northern nigeria We thank you uh, for his ministry, Lord, his leadership in the local church and beyond for his gifts, Lord. And we just pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit afresh to bless him, to speak through him, to take his words and drive them home into our hearts, enabling us to live for Jesus more and more. In his name we ask it. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, I gather, thank you for your invitation, by the way, but I gather you've reached 2 Timothy chapter 4, so I'm going to read the first eight verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's page 1197 in this Bible, and I suspect it may be the same in yours. being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all have longed for his appearing. I've finished the race, he says, verse 7. Paul is thinking of a long-distance race. And these are the last words of the Apostle Paul in possibly, probably, his last letter. And so the last chapter of the last letter that have survived. Paul's final charge to Timothy in this chapter. And therefore, his final charge to the church. And therefore, his final words to us. Indeed, they may contain some of the very last words he ever spoke or wrote. Uh, It's been called Paul's Sermon on the Mount. He's writing within Weeks, perhaps even within days of his martyrdom. As he puts pen to papyrus and writes, verse 6 I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have finished the race. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Incidentally, I won't give it now, but there's a good three-point talk for youth groups, for children's church, indeed for any group. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, Uh, I have kept the faith. But just focusing on the race for a moment, the Christian life here is a race. It's not a hundred-meter sprint, but a long-distance race. It's not so much a Usain Bolt as a Mo Farah. Incidentally, it's good to see that he's back in action again, isn't it? Not sure about the um, controversy surrounding him. But I did like the T-shirt that I saw uh, someone wearing the other day, which said, Fly Mo. (laughs) It's not a race against time or even a competitive race against others. There are only two things mentioned about the race in this letter. Uh, Think back to chapter 2 that you must run it according to the race principles. If you think back to chapter 2, it was in verse 5. According to the race principles, no performance-enhancing drugs, no cutting of the corners. Actually, in the Greek Olympics, you weren't allowed to enter the games unless you'd been trained for them. But here now, he he comes back to the theme of the race in chapter 4, and he says, secondly, there's a crown at the end of it which is at the end of our lives. Verse 7, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The prizes awarded at the Greek Games were evergreen wreaths, not gold medals, not silver trophies. So those are the two things, and both, you notice, mention the crown. There's no crown, chapter two, without conforming. No rules, no wreath. And the crown is awarded on completion. And at first sight, his parting words—I don't know how how they strike Um, you—they strike me as rather an anticlimax. He says to Timothy, uh, end of verse two, "Be patient." Uh, Be careful. Be sensible, verse 5. That's what he means. Keep your head in all situations. Use your common sense. Be sensible, Timothy. Keep going. Endure hardship. Work hard. Discharge all your duties. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? if these really are, the final charge of the great Apostle Paul to the Church and to us as well. It's not exactly what you're expecting from the last apostolic message. No dramatic revelation of revival just around the corner. No prophetic vision of a global spiritual outpouring. No Christian interpretation of world events. Nothing that would spread like wildfire around the blogs and emails and websites of today's self-styled Christian ministries. Timothy, do be patient. And, oh, keep your common sense. Be sensible. Oh, and, and do be careful. Well, it's been the theme throughout this letter, the theme of Christian perseverance. But now we're in a position to look back over the letter. And will you allow me, though uh, I've only been given these first eight verses, to do something of a look back? Because we can now see we're in a position to look over the letter and see the different aspects of this theme. In chapter one, cast your mind back, Timothy was warned not to be a Christian coward but to join Paul in standing for the Christian gospel, even at cost. God hasn't given us a spirit of cowardice, verse 7, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Famous words. Endure. Don't be like the deserters, in other words. And he mentioned in chapter 1, two of them. Uh, They were, these characters, Phygelus and Hermogenes, deserters. Don't be a Christian coward like them. Then in chapter 2, Timothy was warned not to be a Christian faint heart, cutting corners. He says, be a brave heart, like the soldier, athlete, and farmer. The particular characteristics he mentions from verse 3 of chapter 2, the single-minded soldier, the rule-keeping athlete, doesn't cut the corners, and the hard-working farmer. Now, those were three very vivid examples, weren't they? Isn't it true? Soldiers, what's the characteristic of these? Soldiers must be ready to be shot at. Athletes must be ready for a punishing training regime. And farmers must be ready for an early start. Um, My brother-in-law was a dairy farmer. He's actually moved on to something else now. But for many years, he was a dairy farmer. Got up at 4 o'clock every morning. Um, And last week, I was talking just casually over lunch to an archdeacon in Nigeria. His name was Austin. And I said to Austin, tell me what your daily regime is. Take me through your day. And he said, well, I get up at 4. I did stop him at that point. I said, what time do you go to bed? And he said, 9.30. So that made me feel slightly better. He said, I get up at 4, and I do my devotions my personal devotions. I said to him, "Now, do you, do you get up? Do you get dressed? Do you have breakfast? He said, no, I just get out of bed and as I am, I do my devotions from four till five. Okay, what happens at five? He said, then I uh, wake my wife up and we do our devotions together from five to 5.30. Okay, then what happens at 5.30? Then I get dressed, I have something simple to eat and at six o'clock, he says, I go down to church and whoever's there, I pray within church. There'll be some people there. And we have our morning service at 6 o'clock. He so said, then I come back at 7 o'clock and I take the children to school. So, see, this is a guy who's living a fairly ordinary life in many ways. He's got a, a job. He's got children who need taking to school. He's got a wife. All the things that might give him lots of excuse to get out of this training regime... And then he said, at nine o'clock, I go to the office and I start the day's work. Uh, There's a hard-working farmer. So don't be a faint heart. And again, he mentions two faint hearts in chapter two. In verse 17, they're these two characters, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he says have wandered away from the truth. Christian drifters. And Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 2, they're marked by godless chatter. In chapter 3, Timothy was urged not to be a Christian hedonist, a worldly pleasure seeker. And that was in the first five verses of chapter 3, which tends to result in becoming a manipulator. Verses 6 to 9. And this is the point at which Paul points out his own example. So that was the last part of chapter 3. And then points his fire at Timothy, verse 14. As for you, as for you, continue in what you've learned. And again in chapter 3, this is, I don't know if you've realized this, this is very carefully constructed, this letter. Because again in chapter 3, he mentions two examples Two examples of deceitful Christian manipulators, controllers, exploiters, and they were those two characters, Janes and Jambres in verse 8. Imposters. But he says they don't actually get very far, and that's actually true, isn't it? Christian imposters, they may get far for a little while, but eventually people see through them. So that's the little look back. Now we come to chapter 4. And finally, Timothy is warned not to be a Christian chameleon. Changing color to merge in with your surroundings. The people pleaser in verses 1 to 5. Like the story, it's a well-known one, you'll have heard it before, of the police cadet exam. The police cadet is told, you are walking along the street on duty and there is an accident in the middle of the road, and somebody is injured. At the same time, uh, there is a fire in an upstairs window, and someone calling out for help from the upstairs window. At the same time, along the street, you see on the pavement someone being mugged. Which would you deal with first? To which the police cadet replied, Take off uniform and mingle with crowd. But it is true, isn't it? It's very easy, very tempting for all of us to take off our Sunday uniform on Monday and mingle with the crowd. And so at the end of his letter, he comes back to the soldier and the athlete that he had way back in chapter two. And you notice he he doesn't include the farmer here, but he does include the soldier and the athlete In verse 7, when he says, I fought the good fight, that's the soldier, I finished the race. That's the athlete. Now, the contrast he's making now is not so much the cowardly deserters of chapter 1, nor the half-hearted drifters of chapter 2, nor the manipulative imposters of chapter 3, but the Christians in any congregation in danger of just giving up. All of us will have in our churches uh, friends, uh, members of our congregations, indeed we ourselves, tempted from time to time to give up. And Paul says, do what I've done. Fight the good fight, finish the race, don't give up. And keep the faith. don't be a Christian chameleon giving in to the secular world around you. Now again, Paul mentions two conspicuous examples. you see two in each chapter who are named, as with Phygelus and Homogenes in chapter one, as with Hymenaeus and Philetus of chapter two, as with Janus and Jambres of chapter three. We have Demas in chapter 4, verse 9, in love with this present world. And Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14. He did Paul a great deal of harm. Because Paul, I guess, was bad for his business, making pagan idols out of copper metal. And the lesson rings right down to us today. Don't merge in with the secular world, or you will give up your faith. Rather than keeping the faith, Paul had kept the faith. And Timothy and you and I are to do the same. One way we keep the faith is by passing it on, as in a relay race, we pass the baton without dropping it. And Paul outlines in these verses both the context and the content for doing that. Let me now just spend a little time looking at the context and the content of all Christian life. Uh, First, the context of it. Uh, You notice he says, before the coming king. In verse 1, it's the presence of God and of Christ, the coming judge and king. This is the the context in which we live our Christian lives. In the presence of God, he says, and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. That's the context in which he gives it. The presence of God suggests his call, a sense of a commission from God, and all of us need at this, don't we, in the present, now, to be assured that we are where God wants us right now, that we're in the center of his will. And we live before his watching, overruling gaze. But I think the main emphasis of this verse is not so much the present God as the coming Christ. Christ, he says, will come to judge. And in two senses, first in the sense of verse 1, that one day he will discern between those uh, who are lost eternally through their rejection of his love and those who are saved and will be with him forever. Part of the human race will be condemned. Part of the human race will be justified on account of Christ's death for us. And that division of all humanity into two races must be a motivation for all Christian life and witness. But Christ will also judge the church, the church, in a positive sense, in which he uses the word judge in verse 8. Just look at it, you see. Judge comes in the first verse, verse 1, but it also comes in verse 8. And here it's much more positive For Christians, it won't be like a criminal court in which there are only two outcomes, guilty or not guilty. It will be more like a civil awards court in which there will be a reward for faithful, loving service. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. For Christians, it won't be, as I say, uh, so much a guilty or not guilty, but a heavenly prize-giving. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? And again, that must be a huge motivation for our Christian life and witness now. So, part of the context for what we're doing now is the coming of Christ. We live and witness as Christians before God, our Creator, and in view of Christ, our Judge to come. That's part of the context, but there's another part of it. The other part of the context for Christian ministry is the culture of the world in which we live. The contemporary culture is described in verses 3 and 4. He says we also live and witness as Christians in contemporary society and that society invades the church as well as the church culture is always trying to infect the world. The church longs to disinfect the world but is always vulnerable to infection by the world. And what is our culture like? Paul doesn't define culture in terms of music or art or fashion or lifestyle or age, whether we're baby boomers or Gen X or Gen Y or by philosophy, pre or postmodern. One characteristic is singled out, common to all ages and societies, that people cannot bear the truth. They long for the truth, but cannot bear the truth. And Paul says it negatively and positively, and you notice he says it twice. In verse 3 he says they will not put up with sound doctrine, instead will look for a multitude of teachers to suit their own likings. And then again in verse 4 he says they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. He says it twice, and in both cases he says it negatively and positively. In other words, people generally cannot stand the truth and refuse to listen to it. Instead, they find teachers to suit their speculative fancies. They have itching ears for novelty, for spicy bits of news... They don't first listen and then decide whether what they have heard is true. People generally, I know this is one side of a perspective, but it's a side we need to take on board. They first decide what they want to hear and then select people who will oblige by scratching their itch and relieving their tickle. Why is it people are eager for newspapers which they know do not tell them the truth? Indeed, most eager for the least truthful. And no wonder, therefore, that given that pressure from the world around us, a cultural expectation that can pervade even the Christian culture, what happens, I think, is that many Christian ministries end up doing just this. They end up with a Christian ministry to Christians only. And what's more, giving Christian congregations what they want to hear. Now, whereas, of course, that is precisely the thing Paul says to Timothy not to do. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. I think you could imagine possibly Timothy thinking something like this. He says to himself, if people will not listen to the truth, if they can't bear the truth and won't put up with it, wouldn't it be better to narrow down Christian ministry at least to the most receptive? In other words, people who are already in the church and give them what they want to hear. No, says Paul, that's precisely the thing not to do. As a matter of fact, I have observed that many of the Christian ministries that go off the rails, whether churches or itinerant ministries, or parachurch organisations, the ones that go eccentric, or stagnant, or fanatical, or just irrelevant, that get caught in a time warp and end up in sentimental nostalgia, are precisely those which go for a ministry to Christians only. Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't minister to one another and teach Christians. Of course we do. But if that's all we do, we're very vulnerable. It is in fact the presence of unbelievers in our congregation, paradoxically, of unbelievers that we're speaking to that keeps us on the rails because they keep us in touch with the real world. And If we ignore this pattern, we do so at our peril of becoming unbalanced. If we restrict the ministry to professionals, paid employees, or if we restrict the message to one doctrinal emphasis or another, or if we restrict the audience to Christians, then the ministry is likely to go off the rails. Now, that's the context for Christian life and witness. But now the content, verse 2. If the context is in the presence of God, the content must be appropriate to the setting, verse 2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The content of Christian life and witness and ministry is essentially, in this phrase, preach the word. Uh, The word is identical to the gospel, the good deposit of chapter one. It's the conviction in chapter three that he'd learned from the Christian scriptures and from his upbringing. In chapter 4, it's the sound doctrine of verse 3, the truth of verse 4, the faith of verse 7. And Timothy was to preach it. But all of us, of course, in every age, are committed to pass it on, whether formally or informally. To use the title that we used... Uh, of a course uh, uh, that we use some time back, a course called Lost for Words. We're to be not lost for words, but as he said, prepared in season and out of season. And you notice these four things. We're to be urgent, in season and out of season. One translation gets the right sense, I think. Convenient or inconvenient. Meaning not whether or not it's convenient for ourselves, but whether or not it's convenient for our hearers. Sorry, the other way around. Not whether or not it's convenient to our hearers, but whether or not it's convenient to ourselves. We have no liberty to barge insensitively into other people's privacy. Now, what Paul means is be prepared to witness to Christ whether it's convenient or inconvenient to you. It's not a biblical warrant for rudeness, It's an appeal to us for readiness. We're to be urgent. We're to be relevant. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Uh, The New English Bible puts it with argument, reproof, and appeal. And those are the three approaches that we often need to give to people. Intellectual argument, Moral rebuke or reproof, and emotional appeal. Isn't it true? Some people that we meet are tormented by doubts, and they need to be convinced by careful explanation. That's what they need. Some people are imprisoned by sinful and dysfunctional lifestyles. And what they need is to hear God's moral ideal, to be reproved by it. And others, again, are haunted by fears. They need to be encouraged. And God's gospel does all this and more. So we need to be relevant. We need to be patient and here's a vital balance, because although we're to be urgent in the sense that we are longing for people to make a ready response to Christ, we're to communicate with great patience. If We've been trying to bring somebody to church or take them to the Alpha course. We're to be very patient with people. We must never resort to pressurizing people or the attempt to contrive some kind of decision out of people. But wait patiently for God to work in their lives. And we're to be intelligent, careful instruction. So this is Paul's charge to Timothy and to us. If people are initially at least reluctant to consider the claims of Christ, then all the more we must be urgent in our approach Relevant in our application, patient in our manner, and intelligent in our conversation. Ours is the faithfulness department, the results department is God's. Well, as I apply all this, I suppose the first question about the Christian life as a long-distance race is that at some point you have to start the race. Getting into the race isn't automatic. We have to start running. And for the London Marathon, you can't even just turn up, I gather, to the start. You have to apply. Paul himself had started on the Damascus Road when the risen Christ appeared to him, took hold of his life and set him off on a new track. And you don't start the race by virtue of your birth, even being born into a Christian family or church. You have to start running yourself. You don't come out of the womb and, as we say, hit the ground running. I started the Christian race in my bedroom at university. And many, ideally in Christian families, can't remember a time when they were not running, but you still have to start running the Christian race. And that's maybe one of the first things that we need to have in our mind as we, as we meet and mix with friends, old friends, new friends, colleagues at work, and so on. To encourage them, to ask them, have you started the race? Secondly, you have to run the race. You have to keep running. It's no good just starting and then giving up. That's the message of this chapter. Paul had kept running. Or in similar language in this verse, I've kept the faith. And Timothy and you and I are to do the same. And we keep running by passing on the faith. At least that's one of the key ways in which we do. As in a relay race, we pass the baton without dropping it. But there, of course, the comparison with a relay breaks down. Because in a relay, as soon as you pass the baton, you stop running. But in this race, you've always got a baton in your hand, and you keep passing it on, and as soon as you've passed the baton, you find the batons in your hand again, and you're to pass it on to someone else. Just as in verse 2, we're prepared to do it in season and out of season. And not only that, of course, we must finish the race. The different age groups among us, even the age groups among us here, are asking different questions about life. And certainly, the friends, the family, the colleagues at work are all asking different questions. Someone has said, The 20s ask, Am I noticed? The 30s ask, Can I make this all work? The 40s ask, Is there something more? The 50s ask, can I hold on? The 60s ask, Have I become obsolete? And the 70s ask, Was it all worth it? But in the context of chapter 4, Timothy is being urged not to give up. It has all been worth it, provided we haven't become a Christian chameleon, changing colour to merge in with our surroundings. So Paul is thinking of the Christians in any congregation of doing just that, giving up. Do what I've done, he says. Fight the good fight. There are fights not worth fighting, of course. But fight the good one. Finish the race, don't give up, and keep the faith and so i suppose the question for us it's a question worth bearing in mind as we talk to people as we encourage them as we pray for them has this person started the race are they keeping running will they finish question to ask yourself have i started am i that's in the past Am I now keeping running? Will I finish? And as I close, can I just point out forgive me for stealing a tiny bit of next week's thunder if you're doing the rest of the chapter next week. There are, in fact, three categories, just as there are even in church uh, every Sunday. There are those who start the long-distance race well, but end badly. That was Demas. He was presumably once a believer, a close friend and colleague, one of Paul's confidants. But Demas, in love with this present world, had drifted away. Start the race well, but end badly. There are those who start the race badly, but end well. Like Mark, who's mentioned at the end of this chapter. He started badly, which he admitted in his own gospel. It's in chapter 14, when he alludes to himself as one of those who, he didn't actually stop running, he ran away. But he ended well. As he says in verse 11, he's useful to me, says Paul. The rift in their relationship was repaired. Started badly, but ended well. And there are those who begin well and end well. Like Luke in verse 11. And you know, looking back over the years of my own Christian life, I'm so grateful for those dear friends whose faith in their dying has inspired me people like Mark Birchall, Mark Ashton, Chris Bartley, a doctor in our congregation. They finished the race. In a sense, it doesn't matter how we started. The question is whether we will end well. And if we're to end well, we need a clear view of the Lord's crown in verse 8, his Olympic version of a gold medal at the end of the race. And in the meantime, we need the Lord's strength In verse 17. In fact, we need the last sentence of Paul's last letter The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. But it is a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Weren't you expecting a bit more from the Apostle Paul as he departs this life? Some spiritual ecstatic vision or a prophecy of global mission? or a promise of revival power or large-scale conversions or mass transformation of society. Instead, we have this charge to endure, to keep running. And yet it's impossible to read these words without being profoundly stirred. They do breathe an atmosphere of great solemnity, don't they? According to a fairly reliable tradition, although it's not in the New Testament itself, this last letter was written immediately before Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Way just outside Rome. For 30 years, he's labored nonstop as an apostle, an itinerant missional church planter. And he says at the end, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And so he's not worried about his head being taken from his body because a crown will be placed on the head of his resurrection body. And so these words are Paul's legacy to the church. Let's pray, shall we? Father, looking around the church, many of whom I know here, I can see there are many who started the race and who are continuing it. But I pray first for myself and for all of us that we may finish well. And even now that we may keep running. We're very conscious and we do confess that from time to time we flag We slow down to a walk or even stop for a while. Some of us even drifting off course, worst of all, going backwards. But thank you that you are a gracious God and you're constantly urging us on, you're egging us on to keep running. Your great desire for us is that we should finish well and that There's a crown. We hold on to that promise. We thank you that you, the prize-giving judge, promise this crown to all of us who rather than being infected by the world, disinfect the world by our life, by our character, by our witness, by the truth that we live and proclaim. Please help us to do that well, formally and informally. Many of us here have positions in church where we do this from a microphone like this, day by day, week by week. Pray that you would keep us true to you, true to your truth, not just telling people what they want to hear. We do pray the same for every one of us, informally, in the conversations we have with people the people we live with, or in our community, the people we mix with. Oh, Father, we pray that you would inspire and encourage us, even though ordinary day-to-day Christian life in some ways is a plod. It is. It's not glamorous. It's a day by day, one step in front of another. Help us to endure. Help us to persevere. And in so doing, and along the way, to know your presence, to have that awareness of the presence of God with us and in us by your Spirit, around us. Giving us joy and peace. And as we live with and around those who seem to be very hesitant to run this race, give us great patience, we pray. Help us not to be distracted by them, ourselves to give up. But instead, with patient and careful and loving uh, life and witness and Whether or not it's convenient to us, help us, we pray, Lord, to go on and eventually to know that, as we do, we will bring help and life and encourage others to keep going as well. Right now, make your own personal determination. Lord, whatever it is you need to say to him this morning, Lord, help me to keep running today. Commit this day to Him, whatever you'll be doing today. Come, Holy Spirit, fill me, keep me with your word. more courage, more faith, more love, more joy, more patience and wisdom. I need these things today. And as Paul ends his letter, may the grace of the Lord be with us and his
0: spirit within us. Amen. If you're praying, gents, do keep praying. just to say um, we're back here on the 23rd of July for our final Burning Man session of this term. It's been fantastic being with you this morning to finish off your prayers. There's more coffee, croissants on your way out. Great to see you. Have a great week. Keep going, keep running, and encouraging others to do the same. And we'll see you back here on the 23rd of July. God bless.